Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm here on the New Books Network, the History and Archaeology Channels. I'm here today with uh, Professor Chris Lane. He is the Skulls Chair in Colonial Latin American History at Tulane University. Earlier this year, he published Potosi, the Silver City that Changed the World, out again earlier this year by UC Press. Welcome, Professor Lane. Thank you. Very nice to be here. Before we dive into into the questions, can you tell us a little bit about the cover image and the selection process for said cover image? Yeah, I was uh, lucky enough to come across uh, an image painted around 1590 by an indigenous artist named uh, Waman Poma de Ayala. And uh, he depicts the Cerro Rico or the rich hill of Potosi as uh, a kind of treasure holding uh, almost a, it's like a pouch containing silver with two columns uh, being held by an Inca. And uh, this, in a way, encapsulates the idea of the, the rich hill of Potosi as this foundation for the Spanish Empire. And along with that image are the, the words, I am the support for your columns. Where, when, and what were the Cerro Rico and Imperial Villa of Potosi? And what prompted you to study these sites, their environments, indigenous labor, and the purported 8 million consumed by the Cerro Rico? Uh, The Cerro Rico, or Rich Hill of Potosi, uh, is a mountain located in southeastern Bolivia. It's almost 16,000 feet high, and uh, it was probably a sacred site in pre-Columbian times and was probably mined for silver to some degree. Uh, But it was discovered, according to legend, in 1545 uh, by an indigenous prospector. And soon after that, a city developed or just emerged on a a sloping plain next to that mountain and uh, was the first great boomtown of the Americas, really uh, uh, an extraordinary development. And uh, I learned about it in college. I'd, I'd heard the word Potosi before because in Spanish courses, uh, vale un Potosi meant to be worth a fortune. I knew that phrase. But in college, I learned about the Cerro Rico in uh, a freshman class on colonial Latin American history. And it really resonated with me once I learned a bit about the place uh, because my, my family on my father's side uh, were miners in Colorado. And I went to the University of Colorado Boulder and reading about mines in South America and remembering stories of mining told by my grandfather uh, just immediately connected. And I was uh, captivated by the idea. What was the Eurasian bullion famine? And why were Potosi silver mines instrumental in ameliorating this famine? Also, how and why did Potosi become a secular icon? Uh in the late Middle Ages, uh, soon after the, the Black Death of the mid-14th century, 
populations started to rebound throughout uh, what is today Asia, uh, Northern Africa, and Europe, what we call sometimes collectively Eurasia. Um, and as populations grew and commerce rebounded, a demand for gold and silver to exchange goods across these frontiers started to grow. And so it's sometimes referred to as a bullion famine, a shortage of gold and silver, as these were the only metals that really uh, moved across frontiers or boundaries and would be acceptable. Um, gold was coming from Africa, from sub-Saharan Africa, silver from Central Europe, uh, but there just really wasn't enough. And when Potosi's discovery kind of uh, hit the world uh, by surprise in 1545, the, uh, the amount of silver that flowed into, into Europe initially was, was really quite astounding and uh, started to, to uh, alleviate in this famine. And the ratio of value between gold and silver was altered by this as well. Uh, as for the secular icon story, um, an image of Potosi was engraved in Seville in 1553. And as a result of that, uh, the an image that circulated very widely of the Cerro Rico itself and of the imperial villa right below it uh, started to started to stick in people's minds, and it was copied in in many places, including Istanbul. And Potosi was was known uh, not just in Europe uh, and even in the the Middle East, but as far away as China. Can you situate Don? Diego Gualpa's narrative of the discovery of silver veins in the Cerro Rico uh, de Potosi um, in the context of the roles of the Caracas and Charcas, uh, the Peruvian Civil War, the imperial, imperial villa construction, silver distribution, and varieties of indigenous economic actors. Yeah, the, uh, the local population or the population of this part of what is today Bolivia was uh, was quite diverse. There were a large number of Aymara speakers and Quechua speakers in close proximity. The Caracaras were Aymara speakers. The Charcas were Quechua speakers. The Incas came in relatively late and conquered this region and subjected these groups of people to uh, to the empire to pay tribute to uh, work in mining. As it turned out, there were mines near here in in a place called Porco. It's about, uh, I think, 30 miles from Potosi. And uh, these were the most famous of all Inca silver mines. And um, Diego Walpa was one of a number of indigenous people from other parts of the empire. He had come from Peru, the sort of central highlands of Peru. And he was working as a, a kind of servant for uh, one of the conquistadors based in Porco. And he managed to to stumble onto this uh, rich hill uh, by climbing to the top and, and uh, being told to go up there in search of a, a, a sanctuary or a, a waka, a sacred site that might have gold or silver objects. And he found some, and on his way down, uh, the wind kicked up, as he claimed later on, and blew him down, and he found himself uh, sort of digging his hands and elbows into what he knew to be rich silver ore. Um, this was uh, a, a really unexpected event, and uh, it 
happened in the midst of a, a civil war, what we call the Peruvian Civil War, a dispute between the conquistadors and the king of Spain over control of indigenous laborers uh, like Diego Walpa. And um, the, uh, the distribution of silver uh, and the control of the early mines is really pretty much in the hands of indigenous people. It takes a while for it to be fully taken over by the Spanish. So it's, a, it's an interesting hybrid kind of situation with uh, native workers held in encomienda, a kind of serfdom, others called yanaconas, like Diego Walpa, a kind of uh, personal retainer sort of position. Uh, some very soon uh, enslaved Africans also involved and, uh, and all of them kind of struggling to to lay their claims to the, the Cerro Rico. For our listeners, p- please trace Potosi's first th- three decades of boom and bus production from approximately 1545 to 1572, addressing, if possible, ind- indigenous guayras, social change in the what you describe as the Andean Emporium, the Audencia uh, Tarcas, importation of African slaves, as well as the shift from Indios Varas and Indios Venturos to Mingas and Mingados. Yes, this is a, a really dynamic time. The discovery in 1545 leads to a, a pretty quick rush. A number of Spaniards rush in. Uh, as I mentioned, they are bringing native workers from various parts of Peru. Many are brought from Cusco and thereabouts. And, uh, and with them, um, the, the nature of silver mining is, is pretty much uh, monopolized, really, in terms of the, the techniques involved by indigenous workers, uh, helped by some enslaved Africans. Uh, one innovation that the Spanish bring are iron and steel tools. So this enables uh, quite a bit more uh, efficient excavation than was possible using the, the earlier technologies. Uh, of the Incas and their predecessors. Uh, but at this time, um, it's, it's pretty clear that uh, the, the town needs everything to survive. That's uh, too high to grow food, and almost everybody is devoted to, to mining and refining silver. The early ores, the ores that are taken out of the mountain, are quite rich in silver. They're very, very rich from uh, a process called surface enrichment. Uh, and so they can be heated up in in ovens, uh, but this is at a very high altitude. There's so very little very little fuel available. So llama dung was used to fire a kind of wind furnace. The word waira is Quechua for wind, and the wairadores or the people who ran the the wind furnaces were indigenous, and uh, they got their fuel from indigenous llama herders. And uh, they handed over silver to Spanish overlords at the end of the day, but they also managed to keep some of this. And uh, so these first few decades, although silver production was declining from an initial high point around 1550, there was uh, considerable indigenous control of both the mining and refining processes. Um, Many Spaniards got rich bringing in food and also coca and maize for chicha, which is a kind of local beer, a, a corn-based beer. And um, so the, the the process of making Potosí a city required bringing in 
many more people to prepare food. And this is where, where women start to be very important in the city as providers of, of food and beverages. How did the 1572 to 1575 Viceroy of Peru, Don Francisco de Toledo, revolutionize in quotes, mining and refining, mining and refining in Potosi as a great silver machine? If possible, please briefly discuss in your response the consequences of his revival of the 10 peso meter labor draft, hydraulic mills, Habsburg credit practices that mint, as well as the China trade. Yes, uh, probably the most important figure in the history of Potosi in the 16th century after Diego Hualpa, the discoverer, was the Viceroy Francisco de Toledo. He arrived, uh, he was named in 1569, and he arrived in, in Peru uh, pretty soon after, and he finally went home to Spain in 1580. So throughout the 1570s, he spent his time trying to reform Peru as he saw it, to make it more productive uh, for his king. He was the right-hand man of Philip II of Spain. His major intention was to harness indigenous labor in order to produce maximum revenues for the Habsburg kings and, and, and monarchs of Spain in order to advance their projects in Europe, in the Mediterranean, and elsewhere, essentially a kind of uh, what they saw as a global defense of Roman Catholicism. And this project entailed then forcing indigenous people to live in concentrated settlements, um, to pay tribute in cash eventually, to, uh, and most importantly in this story, to work in the mines of, of Potosi. There was already a draft, a mita, using an indigenous, an old Inca system of draft labor. The mita means turn in Quechua. Uh, but that system was more or less ad hoc prior to Toledo. Toledo reached Potosi in 1572 and formalized the Mita, making regional headmen, caciques or curacas, uh, responsible for bringing a set number of workers, young men between 18 and 50 or so. Uh, not all of them young, I guess, but uh, men w within that age to come to the mines and do their stint in turn. And uh, under Toledo, those numbers were, were hugely uh, elevated. And uh, workers were coming from as far away as Cusco, which is about 1,000 kilometers to the north. Uh, and the, the Mita then was a kind of net. We had to, if you lived within jurisdictions subject to the Mita, you had to work in the mines if you were a man and uh, not, a, not a noble, cacique or caraca. The other part of the story, or one other significant part of the story, was the discovery of mercury deposits, a cinnabar, a kind of a, a sulfide ore of mercury, uh, at Juan Cavalica, east of Lima in the, in the Andes Mountains. And that discovery around 1563, 1564, was something that Toledo thought might be wedded to Potosi, might be connected to Potosi in a, in a fruitful way. And so he established a mita there also. And uh, he brought specialists from Mexico who had been working on amalgamation technologies, mixing mercury and silver ores together to, uh, to extract the silver more efficiently in places that didn't have much fuel. And the process from Mexico was, was adapted to Potosi under his watch. This required the establishment also of a number of crushing mills, very complex machines 
uh, made of huge timbers brought from hundreds of miles away. And uh, to fuel or to, to drive these ore crushing mills, a series of reservoirs was built also by Mita workers, indigenous workers in the highlands in the Karikari Mountains, which are right next to Potosi. So all of this together, this really vast complex and almost industrial complex, certainly the biggest or, or closest thing to an industrial city that we could imagine for, for this period anywhere in the world, was uh, combining water power, uh, huge complex machines, complex chemistry with uh, amalgamation using mercury salt and other reagents to extract silver on a very large scale and the mines going deeper underground with thousands of laborers rotating in and out. So this was a revolution in every sense of the word. And finally, the creation of the mint to uh, coin a certain portion of that silver before it went out into the world. Uh, what this enabled then was the trade with, uh, the, the, the trade with China uh, via Acapulco and Manila uh, with annual ships leaving Acapulco for Manila, carrying uh, enormous amounts of silver uh, to trade with the Chinese and with other Asian traders. Please also provide a summary of the 1603 anonymous description of the imperial villa of Potosi, and briefly, if you can, address varieties of female locations, uh, Buenos Aires and Cordoba as slave markets for Potosi, and the contest of the ring during the Guadalupe feast, as well as as, as well as if you can the uh, 1614 uh, inventory of the uh, that bookseller uh, Valentin de Acosta, and of course the 1620s Basque uh, Vicuña Wars. Yes, the uh, the city grew very rapidly. So I've just talked about silver production, the mining complex, the refining complex, the use of. Uh, of some fairly complex technologies for this time. But Potosi was a city. It wasn't just a boom town of the, the sort of, that you might imagine in a Western film. Uh, it, it was a city uh, of over 100,000 people by 1603. And uh, one of the viceroys of Peru sent uh, uh, someone to, to take a look around Potosi. We don't know who this person was, but they're uh, account is really astonishing. It describes how many people lived there, everything they did. It includes a painting of the mountain along with a painting of uh, the silver mills that's in the book. Uh, it ha even has a small painting of indigenous workers using the Waira furnaces. It's the only one we have from that period. Uh, and, a, and a map of the city, which I used to, to form the map that, uh, for my book of the city of Potosi as it was developing. Uh, the number of women in the city by this time uh, was was probably uh, in the twenty or thirty thousand range. We don't know for sure. There are many indigenous women living in a, uh, the townships, as I call them, uh, that uh, kind of strung across the the lower flanks of the Cerro Rico. The city center was mostly dominated by Spanish uh, wealthy Spaniards living close to this close to the main square. Uh, but there was an indigenous marketplace in, in the downtown. And uh, that's where the royal mint of today sits, uh, in the, the, the Plaza del Catu, as it was called, the marketplace. And that was dominated by indigenous women selling chicha and food and so forth. And a, a, quite a large number of indigenous uh, women intermarried uh, with, uh, with 
Europeans and with Africans, and the population became mixed quite quickly. Enslaved women were also selling soup and other things on the square. It's really quite a quite a diverse place. Um, the 1603 visitor uh, noted there there were uh, at least 120 uh, women of uh, of the sex trade involved in uh, sort of known for it, and then many others who were who were not uh, not regarded as as so professional, but uh, that. That business was noted very early, as were uh, problems of venereal disease, and uh, many doctors found a, a place to work in Potosi, uh, tending to people suffering from syphilis and other ailments. Uh, I detail a, a couple of those cases as well. Um, the city, though, is, uh, is, is very quickly a site of challenge, where men of different uh, different ethnic backgrounds coming from different parts of Spain, some from the Basque region in the north, some from Asturias as well, or, or, uh, or Cantabria, or even Galicia. Uh, but most of the early immigrants were coming from the south, from Extremadura, from Andalusia, from La Mancha. And factions developed over time in which the Basques were seen as uh, maybe one of the, the too privileged, too lucky, too wealthy uh, and they were they were challenged by Extremadurans and Manchegos or people from La Mancha and Extremadurans uh, tended to have a reputation for being uh, great pickers of fights. And the term Vicuña was attached to a group of these folks who who were seen as kind of uh, ruffians. Uh, they liked to call themselves Castilians as a nicer term, but um, they they were constantly struggling with each other. Um, the the uh, contest of the ring is a reminder of the lighter side of things, not so much the struggles, the fights between people. Uh, this is a place that spent enormous amounts of money on religious festivals, as well as festivals to mark the birth of a prince. Of course, it took almost a year for news to arrive from Spain. So if a new prince was born or a royal wedding had taken place. It took quite a while for anyone to find out. But once they did, they would have a gigantic, usually week-long fiesta with fireworks and uh, these various plays known as comedias or comedies. There was a comedy house. There was actually a theater built uh, around 1616, if, if I remember correctly. And uh, uh, a number of plays were performed outdoors. Uh, the Contest of the Ring was a kind of neo-medieval uh, challenge with the horse uh, to, to uh, try to spear a ring, a hanging ring, uh, while riding past. Uh, there, were, there were all sorts of contests of this sort and quite a lot of theater. So it's, a, it's, it's evident that Potosi was a, a full-blown city, but one that could spend on superfluous things in ways that other cities could not. How did the 1626 flood, as well as the 1649 recall of debased Potosi coins, in addition to deforestation, disease, and the Mira draft, all contribute to a Potosi bust? And what role did experiments uh, play by uh, priest uh, Padre Alvaro Alonso Barba? What role did they play? I know he comes in at the end of the book, or at least his memory does. Yes, that's right. He's a very interesting character. Uh, what happens in Potosi is uh, 
the the production of silver really reaches a peak quite early in 1592. And from there, it begins a long but steady decline. Uh, the ores of the mountain are harder to reach. Uh, sometimes they're less rich than they were initially. The cost of production goes up. The number of indigenous workers goes down. Uh, many people die from disease. That is a, a, a major cause for, for indigenous uh, decline in numbers. Many things strike the place. And it seems that by 1626, the, the curses begin. Uh, the Basque-Vicuña conflict breaks out in the early 1620s and lasts about three, three years, 1622 to 1625, and it's halted by a royal amnesty. Essentially, it's a problem that is not resolved. It's simply suspended. And the year after that suspension, uh, great rains fall, and uh, the, the dams up above town uh, overflow or actually break apart because they hadn't been maintained. And a, a great rush of water comes blasting through town, sort of like what's happened recently in Brazil, in uh, Minas Gerais, in some of the mining towns there. This great blast of water just obliterates all of the, the mills that had been used for, for crushing silver ore and amalgamation and uh, kills quite a number of people. Um, People at the time said that this was a, a scourge, a punishment from God for the sins of the city, the excesses, uh, whether it be lust or, or luxury or, or ire, whatever it might be, they were, they were paying now. And um, this uh, was, was also followed up um, by uh, a, a series of plagues, a series of, uh, not all of them bubonic plague, but a, a variety of disease epidemics that hit everybody. They killed indigenous people in larger numbers than anyone else, but they, they hit the, the settler population and the enslaved populations as well. One of the interesting uh, effects of the, of the reforms or the changes set in place by Viceroy Toledo was that when he established the mint, he decided that it should be staffed with enslaved Africans. And the slave trade to Potosi grew during the time that, uh, that Spain and Portugal were unified between 1580 and 1640, or under the same king, rather. Uh, and many of those slaves uh, made their way to Potosi to work in, in, uh, in artisan shops, as uh, mule drivers, uh, in, in vineyards nearby, but also uh, to staff the mint. So the mint grew to be a, a rather large, almost industrial operation in its own right. And by the 1640s, there were at least 150 enslaved African men working inside this complex, making coins day and night, almost seven days a week, uh, by the millions, really a, an astonishing output. Uh, but because of the, the decline of Potosi, uh, the, the mines were, were in decline. And so the mint became a site for innovation in the form of debasement. Some of the rich men who were working in the mint decided that they would order the slaves to add more copper to the coins. They were supposed to be 93% silver and 7% copper. And, uh, in, in messing with that ratio, <laughs> the coins started to become uh, less and less reliable. 
it was a kind of crazy idea, but the, the debasement, at least locally, didn't seem to hurt anybody. The coins circulated and no one questioned their, their purity. The problem was these coins were being sent around the world, not just to Spain, but all over Europe, through most of Asia. And uh, once those coins crossed frontiers, they were being tested and occasionally melted down or at least cut into to see if they were of the proper weight and purity. When it was discovered that coins with the P for Potosi were, were not as good as they ought to have been, uh, people started to howl. And in fact, they rejected these coins. This caused the king of Spain enormous troubles because he couldn't pay his bills. And uh, merchants who were carrying these coins to, to India and to Southeast Asia, to China, were also being rejected. And uh, this, this brought great shame to Potosi and was seen as yet another judgment of God, another, another mortal sin committed by the people. One interesting person who comes into the picture right as this crisis is hitting is Padre Alvaro Alonso Barba. And he's often known as Barba, uh, even though his surname was Alonso. <laughs> uh, he's a, a very interesting guy. Uh, a priest by training, grew up in southern Spain. So he was, he was from a town near Huelva. And uh, he made it to the Americas as a fairly young man. And he traveled around to the mining towns that were in the hinterland of Potosí. So Pot the Cerro Rico of Potosí was the most important mining camp of all, the most important metropolis, really. But there were lots of silver deposits in the, in the, within 100 or 200 miles of Potosí, scattered around in the Andes. And he visited many of, the, many of these other camps. The most famous was Oruro, which is a modern, uh, a sizable city in modern Bolivia. Some of the other camps are much uh, smaller and even abandoned today. As he moved around those camps, he tried smelting and amalgamating and otherwise working with different types of ore. So he's quite an experimenter. He's in the tradition of a Francis Bacon. Although he read uh, a number of books, I didn't mention the bookseller in, in Potosí, uh, the Portuguese bookseller whose, whose uh, list or his inventory is quite revealing. Uh, people were reading Cervantes, no surprise, but they were reading all sorts of other stuff, including uh, Galileo Galilei. They were, they were connected to the world of science. And uh, Padre Barba was one of those people who uh, had, had read deeply and widely in the literature on mining and refining, and particularly alchemy, because that was a uh, was quite popular at this time, even though the Inquisition was loath to let people read about it. Um, and he was an experimenter who was willing to challenge received wisdom. And that's, uh, that's what stands out most, is that he was, uh, he was willing to try things that the, the ancients would probably not have approved of. And uh, he was so good at, uh, at coming up with methods to refine ore that, uh, that his method would would survive into the national period. Why and how did Potosí persist after the 1649 bust? If possible, please briefly discuss the War of the Spanish Secession, uh, traveler accounts, the rise of the Galician merchant Antonio López de Quiroga, uh, Zacateca silver mining, as well as South Sea Company trade, and of course those indigenous co-fraternities. Yes. Uh, one of the interesting things about Potosí is that unlike most boom towns, it 
took a long time to go bust. <laughs> it, it lurched and fell and recovered. It was a bit like the Spanish Empire itself. Just when you thought it was down for the count, it would kind of, you know, shake off the, 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 the difficulties of the last blow and stand up again. And uh, Potosi was just pretty much impossible to to completely uh, to completely exploit down to nothing. There were always more uh, more ways to get to the silver ore. The mountain is pretty large, and if you go into it today, you'd be ston- really astonished at how deep the mines got already in the in the 17th century. But it's about this time after 1650 that uh, an inter- an entrepreneur from Galicia named uh, Antonio Lopez de Quiroga uh, emerges as uh, a really innovative figure. He's willing to try new technologies. He wants to hire more skilled workers. Uh, Peter Bakewell, the historian who who knows him best and spent quite a long time tracing his career, uh, shows that he's uh, one of these people who wants to do things differently, and uh, and he does. So he manages to buy up a lot of abandoned mines, introduce black powder blasting. Uh, essentially new combinations of labor. Uh, he invests in very expensive long-term projects that take 20 or 30 years to pay off. But once they do, they revive the mines uh, pretty substantially. So that production doesn't climb, but it doesn't fall off as steeply as it, as it would have otherwise. And he becomes a multimillionaire, you know, quite, a, quite a man about town, a famous figure. Um, and he's a reminder that, that the... The, the mines required a lot of investment. There's the old saying that it, it takes a gold mine to run a silver mine. It's just a very expensive proposition. And those who were willing to take the risks really had to, had to know what they were doing. The South Sea Company was uh, a project that uh, was intended to help pay off uh, Britain's national debt. And uh, it was one of many investment uh, opportunities that came about in the early 18th century in the aftermath of the War of the Spanish Succession, which uh, saw the end of the Habsburg rule and the beginning of Bourbon rule in Spain. This, uh, this succession introduced uh, a new uh, French crown or uh, the uh, French family at the head of the, of the, of the state in Spain. Uh, interested in in reviving Potosi as a way of reviving its own fortunes, um, and Potosi was seen as an inexhaustible source. Uh, but that was true of the French as well. This was the time of Louis the Fourteenth, uh, who sided with the Spanish during the War of the Spanish Succession against the British. Uh, although the British won or the English won that war, they uh, they didn't uh, exactly take advantage of the peace as they might have. They did found the South Sea Company with the hope of trading enslaved Africans at Buenos Aires uh, and other places for Potosi silver. Um, these reminders of Potosi's importance show up in, in a number of images. So we, we find French and English iconography uh, also, Dutch images of Potosi circulate pretty widely, and the idea is that if Spain is in decline or if Spain is having trouble, then perhaps the French or the English might be able to 
at least tap in, if not take over these minds. So can you discuss the uh, literary magical realism as well as the artistic contributions to Potosi of respectively uh, the uh, Azans as well as Olguin, respectively an uh, author and artist? Yes. Uh, another interesting thing about Potosi, it spawned a lot of interesting folks, but the, we know there were playwrights and poets and we have fragments of their production. Uh, there was quite a lot of music played and uh, we have some fragments of songs as well. But the artists that we know the most about, or at least that we, we have the most surviving work from, are uh, this writer, uh, homegrown, locally born, uh, he wrote under the name uh, Bartolome Arsans de Orsua y Vela. Uh, his real name is somewhat different, but uh, that's that's the one he wrote. He liked the the fancy one. He's very much a Baroque writer. He sat down. Yeah, he's an interesting guy in part because he he wanted to explain to the world or for posterity why his city had failed, what had gone wrong, and it was he who actually laid out that three part. Uh, punishments of God story from the 17th century. And he said that it began with the Basque-Vicuña War, then it went to the 1626 flood, and then the great mint fraud of 1649 that that, uh, finally brought the city to its knees and it has just not recovered since then. Um, So those three scourges that that destroyed his city and took it from a city of 100,000 to a city of 20,000 or 30,000 people uh, was was part of what he wanted to do. But he memorializes the city in a way that is not just a year-by-year or blow-by-blow account of its history, but one that verges off into fantastical tales of witchcraft, of uh, poisonings, of duels. Uh, A number of interesting female characters show up, uh, ones that I refer to as the warrior maidens, borrowing from an, an earlier uh, compilation of some of his stories. Uh, he he just makes the place completely fantastic. I mean, you if if you read a bit of our sons, you it's like a Harry Potter film. People are flying, uh, you know, casting spells upon each other, murdering each other with poison. Uh, it's just just a constant uh, constant world of excitement. And uh, Arsans is really the one who captures that in a way that no one else does. And it comes up to his own lifetime. He finally dies in 1736. And by that time, he'd written a million words. So it's not a short story. Um, The painter Melchor uh, Perez Holguin, often known as Holguin, was born in Cochabamba, another Bolivian city not too far away that supplied wheat and other, other foods to Potosi. He moved there as a fairly young man and found that uh, because of the the wealthy people in town, he had plenty of work. And uh, he painted all sorts of religious paintings. Uh, Many of them are still on view in the the Mint Museum in Potosi. The old 18th century Mint is now a museum. And uh, his paintings have a, a really peculiar cast. He had a strange palette, kind of silvery gold gray palette. His, his figures are always gnarled and bony and, and sort of twisted. Um, so you, you can spot his paintings. It's a bit like, uh, like an El Greco. You can see it right away. That's a Holguin. 
that's uh, that's clearly his hand, or somebody trying to copy him. And uh, the painting that I think is most amazing, it's reproduced on a very small scale in the book, but you can see it online, is at the Museo de América in Madrid. And it's it depicts the entry of the Viceroy Morcillo, who comes into Potosi in 1716. And it is just a phenomenal uh, document of life in the city, even though it's in decline. It is just so lavish, this reception with hundreds of, of men in costume and uniform marching by with their, with their guns held up. And uh, the painter himself is at the bottom of the picture. Uh, dogs and kids and everybody else are in there. Women are all standing on their balconies, uh, having hung out their tapestries and their paintings outdoors so that everyone could see them. Uh, so that the the viceroy could see them, presumably, and uh, just making a huge show of things. So Holguin, I think, kind of cemented the image of Potosi as a place that would not die, even if the silver was was kind of running out. For our listeners, please elucidate the reforms of uh, Governor Ventura de Santelix Ibanero, addressing the 1751 riots during the Co-Fraternity Ritual. In addition, how did Potosi labor practices contribute to the 1780 to 82 Great Andean Rebellion? Yes, the uh, the um, the Bourbon dynasty, once it came to power in Spain, was uh, was famous for its own attempts at reform. Uh, much like Viceroy Toledo, there was this belief that if if everything could be done right, if you could organize labor, you could or- organize technology, you could get the taxes right or the other in- economic incentives right, then Potosi would be revived and it would it would save the empire. And uh, this governor, known as Santelices, was uh, one of those figures who thought that that he could turn things around. And it was typical of these Bourbon ministers; they had been ministers of government, uh, bureaucrats that they had been trained in Spain in various uh, uh, very modern enlightenment theories of economy. And Santelices decided that the locals didn't know what they were doing. They were organizing labor badly. They were treating Mita workers too badly. Uh, They were wasting Mita labor on other things, not on productive silver mining. Uh, he, He basically had nothing positive to say about about the local situation. Another concern were indigenous miners who on the weekends or late at night went into the mines and took out very high quality ore, which they then processed in, in places that were not, not visible to bureaucrats like Santelices. So what, what was essentially happening by the mid 18th century was that Potosi had developed a parallel uh, economies, one with indigenous workers producing silver on their own, and another with Mita workers producing silver for their uh, their overlords or those who they were assigned to. And mercury was always a problem because the crown controlled its sale, and those who owned the mills wanted it cheaply or even free. The king was always trying to collect debts on mercury. So reformers like Santelices really had their work cut out for them, and they discovered that uh, locals would essentially manipulate them or or trick them into overreacting in 
when they claimed that the indigenous folks were about to rebel. Um, indigenous confraternities were one way of organizing. Uh, these are religious confraternities devoted to a particular saint or, or religious devotion. Uh, and those, those confraternities often uh, formed a kind of labor union where workers would uh, take care of themselves uh, or take care of workers who were hurt, uh, injured, had to go to the hospital or otherwise be cared for, uh, folks who were out of money or needed a place to stay. So the, the confraternity, uh, that structure uh, was, had a kind of social, a social role that uh, was understood, but also a bit resented or, or seen as a cause for worry, that the confraternity might be a place where workers would organize a strike, for example, or some other kind of activity. On that note, what Bourbon reforms, including the new Mita, did Governor Pedro Vicente Cañete y Dominguez implement in the 1780s and 1790s? And how did drought, drought as well as famine, ultimately undermine these reforms? Yes, uh, one of the things that happens in the Andes in the 1780s that is unlike Mexico and unlike really any other part of the Spanish Empire is a massive rebellion. And that rebellion was sparked in part by the demands going up, uh, ratcheting up demands on the Mita, uh, but also uh, abuses by bureaucrats in the countryside, forcing indigenous people to purchase uh, goods that were that they didn't want, uh, otherwise uh, making taking advantage of them. Uh, the resistance then to the Bourbon reforms uh, broke out in a, in a massive uh, event known as the Great Andean Rebellion, at least that's what historians call it today. And it had parts in Peru near Cusco, uh, in, in just north of Potosi, and also near La Paz. Uh, as a result of that rebellion, the Spanish in charge uh, of, of Peru and, and of the, what is today Bolivia were essentially terrified of the potential of native uprisings. They, they saw the, the writing on the wall. If they continued to, to run things badly, native people could destroy them and simply wipe them out. And so some of the reforms that were introduced were intended to, to ameliorate the abuses of the Mita while also maintaining it to uh, introduce new technologies in the mines, uh, again, to, to try to alter the structure of ownership and renting of mines in order to uh, increase crown revenue. Uh, and all of these things were being pushed by a new, a new group of reformers. Cañete Dominguez is the best known of these. And uh, he's actually born in the colonies. He's uh, born in Paraguay, but ends up uh, pushing for, for a massive reform. He's, a, he's another very interesting character, similar to Viceroy Toledo. He travels all around. He gets as much information as he can, uh, but he's also an enlightenment figure. He doesn't believe that the local elites are up to snuff. They don't really know the technology, uh, that he thinks they're unnecessarily cruel. Um, but there's a growing tide at this time to abolish the Mita. Uh, enlightenment thought is essentially arguing now that, uh, or enlightenment thinkers are arguing that the Mita is an unfair and, and just simply cruel subjection of Native peoples to a labor system that they do not deserve. And, uh, and it's, it's about this time that a fellow named Villagra, uh, coming from Buenos Aires, 
makes a, a really strong charge against the mita, and uh, it's it's seen as something that's uh, it's morally reprehensible, and its days are numbered. But in the midst of all of this, uh, there's an attempt to revive the, the the refineries with a new process invented by Ignaz van Born in Europe and introduced by uh, a mining mission led by a Polish baron named uh, Nordenflicht. And uh, his, his attempts to, to transform the technology of refining are welcomed initially, but seen as, as not really appropriate given the, the availability of fuel in Potosi and always a, a problem there. Uh, so he was more or less creating a, a refining method similar to the one designed by Padre Barba back in the 1640s that would use uh, heated copper cauldrons um, with salt, uh, a salt solution uh, to speed amalgamation and uh, improve the recovery rates of, of amalgamation with, with even low-quality silver ores. But the Born process and the machines that it required were simply not easily reproduced in Potosi, given the, the available tools and, and supplies and fuel. And uh, this was seen as a failure, one of several bourbon failures. Right after this, or on top of this, came uh, climatic fluctuations, droughts that, uh, uh, you know, one or two bad harvests in a place that's already difficult to live is enough to wipe out a portion of the population. So this was, uh, these stresses uh, were, were very hard on Potosi. And without water, the mills couldn't run. And so the mills were stopped because of drought. Uh, this is just on the eve of the Napoleonic invasion of Spain. How and why did Spanish-American revolutions after 1810, especially in Buenos Aires and Peru, result in the abolition of the Mita draft and annexation of Potosi by British investors such as General William Miller? Uh, yes, Potosi is always seen as a prize, even when it's not doing well. It's, a, it's the place where the mint is. It's the place where uh, the rich people have concentrated quite a lot of capital. And, of course, the p potential of owning or controlling the silver mines goes right back to the conquistadors. Gonzalo Pizarro and uh, his brothers, uh, Hernando and others, uh, but Hernando in particular had a great interest in the early mines of, of uh Porco and Potosi. And by the time of the Napoleonic invasion of, of Spain in 1808, um, there were a number of, of enlightened figures in, in Buenos Aires, mostly merchants, who started to think about independence, what, what it might be like to be independent from Spain. And to do that, they saw that it would probably be important to have some control over Potosi, to have a money supply, to have a supply of silver. And as it happened, Buenos Aires at that time was the capital of the viceroyalty of Rio de la Plata. And so it, 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 Potosi was within its jurisdiction. So the, the early rebels wanted to capture Potosi. And of course, the royalists, those who were defending the, the crown of Spain, wanted to keep Potosi. So it became this bone of contention, a place to fight over. And both sides were claiming, if we can take Potosi, we promise to end the Mita. It was a way of... Uh, trying to stimulate some indigenous support, uh, which was generally not forthcoming. Indigenous people had learned not to trust uh, anyone who made such promises. Uh, but 
uh, Potosi bounced back and forth. It was taken by the, the rebels and then taken back by the royalists and then eventually taken back by Simon Bolivar in 1825. And it was here that he ended his long march uh, that began in Venezuela uh, to, to liberate Spanish South America from, from, from uh, the tyranny of the, the, the Bourbon kings of Spain. And he climbed to the top of the Cerro Rico and gave a speech. And uh, the nation Bolivia took his name. So Bolivar gave rise to Bolivia. Uh, immediately, uh, the British, who were uh, at least there were some, Brit some British soldiers in the camp of Bolivar, when they went back to London, where Bolivar had initially uh, uh, gained a lot of support, to seek uh, foreign capital, to seek British capital, to invest in Potosi and to see if it couldn't be revived using the new technologies of the early 19th century. By this time, steam engines and other sorts of complex machines were being used in the mines of England. Uh, it was believed that Potosi then ought to be revivable using this new investment in new influx of, of technology and capital. It didn't turn out that way. It turned out that Potosi was too remote and that it was uh, really, as had happened with the Nordenflicht expedition, it was very difficult to replicate uh, all of the, all of the, the basic requirements of uh, industrial capitalism in, in the high Andes, uh, using only mules to, to carry huge machines. Um, but the investment was there and British interest was, was really intense. So can you briefly touch on the second revival of Barba's method of boiling pulverized silver ore with salt in copper cauldrons, particularly after 1850? In addition, how did the shift to tin after 1900 facilitate the reemergence of entrepreneurs as well as Potosi as a hotbed of political agitation? Yeah. Um, one of the interesting things about Potosi, yet again, <laughs> is that it would not die. <laughs> Uh, even though it seemed with uh, the arrival of Bolivar that the place was dead and would not be revived and the British failed in their attempts to, to get the mines going again, at least to, to the level that they would have liked, uh, locals continued to mine and always alongside these large investments were what we would today call artisanal or small-scale miners who knew how to kind of work their way through the old shafts and tunnels to discover uh, pockets of good ore that they could then mill in small mills and refine using the simplest technologies. Now, as uh, it became harder to, to get ores that could be refined using the standard amalgamation process, uh, it, uh, it appeared that um, this method that Padre Barba had come up with ought to be attempted at different scales, small, medium, and large. And local capitalists, local pioneering families invested in it in Potosi. Uh, and it was also done on a pretty small scale by artisanal miners. They managed to scale it down just as the, the later cyanide process that would be introduced in the 1890s could also be scaled down or up depending on, on what you wanted to do. Uh, but this, this was an interesting example or a notable example of an, a colonial technology, a 17th century technology being rediscovered and applied in the 19th century, in an, in a full-on industrial era, uh, and it worked. It worked quite well for its time, but eventually silver prices dropped, and even with the introduction of of cyanide technology in the late 19th century, the last years of the 19th century, uh, 
um, silver turned out to be a less a less desirable product. The mines, fortunately, also had zinc and lead, and most importantly, tin. And so, what what we see is a, a turn to uh, to tin production as uh, as a kind of last salvation. So I have one more question, Professor Lane. What's up for you next? I know you're working. Are you working on a second uh, volume about Potosi? Are you taking a vacation? What's going on with you next? <laughs> well, I'd like to take a vacation, uh, but I'm sort of ab- absorbed by the story of the great mint fraud of the mid 17th century. That's really what I, I got started with. And I decided along the way that I needed to get a clear handle on Potosi's long, long history, its whole trajectory before I could make sense of that episode. But it, it's a global story, much like the book. This book I really wanted to frame in terms of global history to make sure that people understood not just the local history of Potosi, but its global significance, the importance of the silver that flowed out, and also the influx of commodities that people purchased that came from all over the world migration from all over the world to this place as well, uh, essentially turning it into a not just a periphery, but in fact, a center of global capital formation, and uh, also a very interesting town. But uh, the project that I'm engaged in right now is really attempting to understand how the world was linked by Potosi silver in the form of coins, that is, uh, essentially the predecessors of the modern dollar, the Spanish piece of eight, or peso de a ocho. And because of the debasement scandal, uh, we know a lot more about that circulation. Simply because there was this crime and this outcry against this money, it it produced a rather interesting paper trail that strings uh, strings us around the world and really gives us a sense of how important this money was and how important uh, it was to to fix the problem. That is, for the king of Spain to solve, solve the crime and punish the culprits. All right. Well, hope you remember the New Books Network for that uh, forthcoming contribution. Oh, I will. Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, this is Ryan Tripp on behalf of the New Books Network. This has been a joint production of the History and Archaeology Channels. Uh, the, the historian is Professor Chris Lane. The book is Potosi, The Silver City That Changed the World, out earlier this year by UC Press. Please tune in next time.